Hey everybody, welcome to Come Follow Me Daily Dose. I'm Lindsay Hansen and today is April 23rd. Today we begin a brand new Come Follow Me block, which is going to be John chapter 7 through 10. So I am so excited about this week. I've said it before, but I just really, really love the gospel of John. I love the chance that we have this week to focus exclusively in John. There's something special about John. I love the other gospels too, and they tell us such great stories about the Savior, and they tell us about the doctrine that he taught. But John tends to show us the divinity of Jesus Christ. John tends to show us a Christ that the other gospels don't, or a more complete version of Christ that maybe the other gospels don't. I love getting to know the Christ of John, and I'm excited to spend this week with him, coming to know him better, coming to see his divinity and his relationship with God in these chapters. There is so much in here to learn from and to study, and I'm so excited that we get the week to just really dedicate to John. It's interesting, the bulk of the book of John focuses on the last six months of Jesus's life. And we'll take a look at that timeline in just a minute when we get into some of these verses. But what's fascinating here is that John chapters one through six are the first two and a half years of Christ's ministry. And John chapter seven through 21 shows us his last six months. Those first two and a half years were mostly spent near Galilee, teaching there, teaching near his home. The people there knew him. And we don't see a lot of that from John. John is going to show us more of the Savior's ministry around the area of Jerusalem. And that's really, really fascinating. Let's keep in mind who John was writing to. He was writing to the converted believers, the members of the church. And yet, the bulk of John is in Jerusalem. And so we're seeing a lot of pushback on Christ's divinity in these chapters. We're seeing the opposition that Christ received in Jerusalem. But the fact that John is writing to the members also explains why we get to see the more divine side of the Savior here in these chapters and here in the book of John. John really writes in a special way, and I think it's because he's writing to people who have already gained a testimony of Christ as the Son of God. And so he gets to add upon that testimony, and we get to see more of Christ in the book of John. So I'm excited to take a look at this with you this week. Now, the book of John chapter seven starts out saying after these things. So it's important that we understand what came before, what happened before. So at the end of John chapter six, we know that the savior has multiplied bread. People are coming to him because they're wanting to eat. And the savior is not multiplying the bread. He in fact gives the sermon about being the bread of life. And in the end of John chapter six, it says that a lot of people turned away from Christ and walked no more with him. And so after that, he had people, he had Jews that were angry with him, who were frustrated with him. And that kind of dictated where he went from here on out. In fact, it says, for he would not walk in Jewry because the Jews sought to kill him. So he kind of avoided the southern area because he was afraid for his life. He knew that his time had not yet come. In fact, he's going to say that a little bit later. Verse two, it says, now the Jews feast of the tabernacles was at hand. Now I'm grateful for John for clarifying what was going on, because this is going to help put this timeline on the Savior's life. The feast of the tabernacles was one of three feasts that the Jews usually 
went to Jerusalem to celebrate. It was a joyful celebration that was celebrated in what we now know as the end of September, beginning of October. And part of the celebration was a celebration of gathering in all the fruits of the year. It was a week-long celebration. Sometimes it was known as the Feast of the Booths or the Feast of the Huts because oftentimes they would build booths or huts and they would camp in them for the week to remember the 40 years that Israel spent camped in the wilderness. They offered sacrifices. They worshipped. It was a time when most Jews were very, very happy to be together and to be in Jerusalem. So you would think, here we have the Savior. He's the King of the Jews. You would think that he would be anxious to go to Jerusalem to celebrate. Let's take a look at what happens. Verse 3, it says, His brethren therefore said unto him, Depart hence and go into Judea, that thy disciples may also see the works that thou doest. Now, that sounds like a really happy, positive, faith-filled verse, right? And it's important to note that when it says, his brethren therefore said unto him, this isn't just talking about the other members of the 12. This is talking very specifically about Jesus's half-brothers. Remember, he had four half-brothers and two or more half-sisters. And so here it's saying his half-brothers come to him and they say, hey, you should go to Jerusalem. And you should show the people in Jerusalem the works and the miracles that you've been working here so that they can believe in you too. Again, it sounds faith-filled. It sounds great. In fact, the very next verse sounds like a testimony of the Savior. It says, For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself unto the world. So it sounds like they're bearing testimony of him, right? But what we don't get here is the tone. And based on the verse that follows, most likely their tone was a tone of mockery. Verse 5 says, For neither did his brethren believe in him. So most likely they were mocking him and saying, Hey, you know, you've shown everyone here all these amazing things that you can do. Why don't you head to Jerusalem and try to convince them of who you are with the works that you are doing? Now, it's interesting because that statement alone tells us a lot about his brothers. Now, keep in mind, his brothers are not all bad. We know at least James converts and becomes super powerful. But here in this moment, they're not so great. And it shows why in this statement, they are basing all faith and testimony and belief off of the works of Jesus, off of his miracles. So he says he's not going to go to Jerusalem because it's not his time yet. He understands that The people in Jerusalem want to kill him, and it is not time for that. So he says, I'm not going to go, but you guys go. But then he does eventually go in secret. And what he teaches there is something that, honestly, his brothers could have used. It would have helped them to understand. Starting in verse 16 of John chapter 17, it says, Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. If any man will do his will... He shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. The Savior here teaches us how we can gain testimony of doctrine and how we can be converted to doctrine. His brothers struggled because they were basing all of their belief off of the things that they saw. And as we've talked about this year, witnessing miracles can be a catalyst to faith, but they absolutely cannot be a foundation of faith. And it would seem that his brothers weren't doing much to gain that testimony beyond witnessing the miracles. And here the Savior is going to teach us that that is not enough. If we want to 
know the doctrine, if we want to gain a testimony, if we want to be converted, then it is essential for us to do the doctrine, to live the gospel and allow that living the gospel with a focus on Jesus Christ to change our hearts. Sister Bonnie Oscarson explained this when she said, sometimes we try to do it backwards. For example, we may take this approach. I will be happy to live the law of tithing, but first I need to know that it's true. Maybe we even pray to gain a testimony of the law of tithing and hope that the Lord will bless us with that testimony before we've ever filled out a tithing slip. It just doesn't work that way. The Lord expects us to exercise faith. We have to consistently pay a full and honest tithe in order to gain a testimony of tithing. This same pattern applies to all the principles of the gospel, whether it's the law of chastity, the principle of modesty, the word of wisdom, or the law of the fast. My friends, a testimony is gained, is strengthened, and is turned to conversion as we live the gospel focusing on Jesus Christ. Elder Oaks once said, We should remember that acquiring a testimony is not a passive thing, but a process in which we are expected to do something. My friends, I want to extend the invitation to think today. Is there an area of the gospel in which you are hoping to gain a better testimony? or which you're hoping to be more converted, it would be my challenge to think on that and then decide what can I do? What area of the gospel can I live more fully in order to gain a better testimony or conversion of that principle? It is my testimony that as the Savior taught here, we come to know true doctrine as we live that doctrine with an eye single to God. Thank you so much for listening today. If you're enjoying this podcast, make sure to follow us on social media, subscribe, like, comment, or share. This has been Come Follow Me, Daily Dose, and I'm Lindsay Hansen.